Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome listeners to another episode of the story behind the song, the Consequence Podcast Network series, where I interview the artists behind some of the most iconic, memorable, and lasting songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media, and each month I dive deep into two songs with my guests. In this episode, I speak with Shirley Manson, lead singer and songwriter of the great band Garbage. Starting in 1995, this all-star band with world-class Nirvana producer Bruce Butch Vig at the production helm released hit after dynamic hit with an infectious pop sound that belied its frequently dark lyrics. Awash in a sea of grunge at the time, Garbage went the other way and to great effect. Their number of top 10 hits may, and likely will, surprise you. The band was chosen to record a James Bond theme song, for God's sake, and now here we are, seven studio albums into its journey. Their latest is 2021's No Gods, No Masters, which continues to showcase the band's critically acclaimed sardonic songs that swell even as they rebel. As always, we discuss two songs, one of the band's signature songs, and the second is the artist's pick. So here, after Shirley's guided tour of her musical journey and evolution, the two of us let the misery pour down on us as we discuss only happen when it rains. And then Shirley tells me about her second pick, The Men Who Rule the World from their latest album, and how that song rained down on her in a spontaneous moment of divine inspiration. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with fierce, funny, authentic, and unapologetic Shirley Manson of Garbage. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Story Behind the Song podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network, and today I'm honored to have Shirley Manson from the great band Garbage. Shirley, great to see you. Peter, great to see you. And where are you today while you're touring around? Uh, we are in Philadelphia. Ah, uh, okay, great. Well, as I was telling you right before we started, uh, I just saw you in the band 
in San Diego just a couple weeks ago, and it was an amazing set. So for everybody out there who's listening and watching, you must go see this tour. It is excellent. It's great. And one thing, surely, as I was there, and I, I've always been a fan of garbage from the very beginning, but it's almost like you, when you were playing all the different songs, it's almost like you forget how many great bangers that the, that the band has. And it was uh, you know, so many, one after the other. So uh, it was really fun. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, we do have a lot of songs yeah. at this point. You know, that's the glory of being around for nearly 30 years, you know, so we're very lucky. Yeah, well, absolutely. And so the, the last album came out, uh, No Gods, No Masters, about a year ago, and mm-hmm. seven total studio albums. You released your first album in 1995 to much critical acclaim, and there's been an endless string of like critical acclaim. And another thing that I had forgotten is that you had sung the James Bond theme for The World Is Not Enough. Which, mm-hmm. how did that feel when you did, was that like, was that surprising to you or how, how did you feel about doing that? Yeah, I mean, that was pretty wild, I have to say. I mean, never in my wildest imaginings <clears throat> did I ever think I'd get to sing a Bond theme, you know, because um, James Bond has a certain sort of meaning in Scotland that's slightly more intense probably than anywhere else because, of course, Ian Fleming was considered one of ours and one of the, the greatest Bond is, of course, Sean Connery, he's like our you know, our most beloved actor. And um, so, yeah, to get asked to do that was really wild. It felt like just too big. It was because, I mean, we were an alternative rock band. You know, it's not something up until that point anyone who was in our position would have ever been considered for that gig, you know. So it was kind of wild. Before we get into the two songs, how does that even happen that you get invited to do a James Bond thing? <laughs> That's a good question. David Arnold, who was the composer of the film, had his eye on me for a while, he said. And he called me up when I was in London and he said, uh, well, you can't, he literally talk sort like that. He sort of talks through his nose. And he invited me to go and have a cup of coffee with him. And he sat me down in front of, of him and, and literally just said, how would you feel about singing the next Bond theme? And that was that. Was it an immediate, absolutely? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, I nearly burst into tears. It was like wild. <laughs> I mean, I knew it would mean something, not just to me, and, but to my mum, you know, to my dad, like that. Yeah. Our success up until that point didn't really mean that much to my parents. I mean, they were proud of me. They were excited. But, uh, you know, when you say, Mom, I'm about to sing the next Bond theme, <laughs> it means a lot to your parents, you know. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a pretty lasting yeah. thing. So, yeah. true to its name, and, and I am going to gesticulate because that's that's what I do, but true like to its it, name, uh, thank you. Story behind the song, we talk about two songs and we dig deep. So we're going to go into Only Happy When It Rains, which is a classic, of course. And then the second one, as I said, The Men Who Rule the World. Your biting song, uh, political song, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's strong. It's, it's very good. But let's first get into a guided tour of how you, Shirley, from the time you were a child and evolved into becoming a singer-songwriter. But let's start with your mother was a big band singer. Amateur. I mean, not, not professional. Okay. But was that a big influence on your, on your path? Well, my mother definitely was, yeah. I mean, she was the one who introduced me to music, you know. So, yeah, she was a huge influence on me and her taste 
I was lucky I had like a parents that really encouraged me to be musical. So I was playing piano from when I was about five. I sang in the school choir. I played in the school orchestra and I also sang in a choir outside of school that my dad um, sort of more or less forced me and my sister to sing in. And so I got a really great musical education. Then when I went to high school, I got so lucky in that this school that I went to, it was a government funded school. It was attached to the city's most prestigious musical school. And so we had access to like a studio, you know, and, um, you know, this was in the 80s, early 80s, like unheard of for students to have access to a recording studio, you know. So I, I was really, really, really lucky. Well, how did you get from from being in the choir to getting in front and being the lead singer? How did that happen? Really, really peculiar question, because it was never something I wanted for myself. I never wanted to be a singer in a band. You know, I actually wanted to be a ballerina originally. Then Hmm. I wanted to be an actor. And I fell into it by default, mostly because I was in uh, Edinburgh Youth Theatre. So um, I was putting on plays, you know, regularly with with that that group and one year we were performing at the Edinburgh Festival which is a huge arts festival that's held in Scotland every year and um, our team needed singers and so this guy came in a friend of one of the actors and he had a band called Goodbye Mr Mackenzie and he said would you come and play keyboards for me in my band and for want of having nothing better to do I was like yeah okay so I became a keyboard player and backing vocalist for that band and I was in that band for a decade for a decade Mm, yeah I I didn't realize you were in yeah really crazy and we got signed to Capitol Records then we got signed by Gary Kerr first who was an amazing um, music manager who, who looked after like Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie and he took a real shine to me and he was really invested in me and when Goodbye Mr Mackenzie kind of hit the slopes um, for a lot of different reasons, mostly because we spent our record advance on <laughs> on hedonism in Berlin um, and dip, came back home. I'm going to have to ask you more about that one. Just, you know, the usual partying and drugging and just really that kind of rock and roll cliche that you indulge in when you're young. And uh, so Gary Kerfer said, I'm dropping the band, but I'm keeping you. And whenever you put something together, you need to call me. And so goodbye, Mr. McKenzie were all freaked out that we were getting dropped. And we we decided that I would take over lead vocals. We'd rename the band Angelfish. And that's what we did. And so Gary then signed Angelfish. Angelfish put out a record in the States. We got played on MTV once. Um, on Matt Pinfield, actually, was the one who played the video. And that's when Steve Marker saw me perform, suffocate me, and thought, she has an amazing voice and we're looking for a singer and maybe she would be somebody we'd want to work with. And that's how it all started. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've I've had a number of guests, including one of your big influences, Debbie Harry, and that was also wonderful to be able to talk to her. But there's so much serendipity that comes into all these things. You happen to be, your video happens to be on 120 minutes and then that was seen and, you know, obviously, and you were invited then because of that, you know, that happenstance, you were invited in to meet the band and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, I mean, they weren't really looking for a, a like a forever singer, <laughs> <laughs> even though they got one. Um, they were just looking for people to collaborate with. And so when we met, we actually met in London. We 
hung out, we liked each other, we separated and I remember very earnestly shaking their hands and wishing them good luck with their project no matter what happened you know I wish you the best with this project and then we went home and that was the night Kurt Cobain died and so it, it it's a sort of that was the beginning of garbage that then that night you know the night the music died so to speak you know we sort of came out of those ashes it's, which I think is very poetic very beautiful you know so yeah that was the story and then, of course, I had to go to Madison, Wisconsin and, and audition, in adverted commas, properly. And it was a fiasco of monumental proportions. Because I was really nervous. I'd never written any music. I, li- I basically lied when they said, you know, we want someone who's going to contribute, you know, the full hand to the, the music, to the writing of it. And I was like, yeah, no problem. I've been in a band for 10 years. And... I mean, I don't, I'm so brutally honest. It's so, it's so uncharacteristic of me to have said that, but I knew it was a really good opportunity and I didn't want to blow it. And um, so they, they put me in front of a microphone and they were like, all right, we're just going to play your track. They played me Vow. That was the first track they played and said, just make up something over the top of it. And I, of course, I, I, I couldn't. I didn't know. I didn't know how to jam. I didn't know what you were supposed to do. I was just frozen. And it was like, um, <laughs> it was kind of like a scene out of Shreds. If you've ever seen Shreds, you know, where people make sort of, they, it's like word salad and, and, and sort of syllable salad. And I just kind of was going, I just couldn't get it together. And so, of course, I left Madison and we were all very disappointed because we knew it was a disaster. But then they called me back up and said, we really liked her. Is she willing to try again? And I went back up to, to Madison a few months later and by this time they had actually come up with a melody for Vow themselves and so I had something more concrete to work with and and that was when we all sort of gelled and I think we knew that we could do something that that was going to sound good at least whether we all got along long term is another thing entirely but uh, that was that and they were like yeah we want to work with you on one song and here I am 30 years later (laughs) they're stuck with me they can't shake me poor souls but it's again, it's amazing that because of that hundred that video that was seen, the angelfish video that was seen on 120 minutes, that's how all of this came to be. And here you are 30 years later yeah. doing your thing. So after you had that audition and you felt like you blew it and you left back to go to Edinburgh, were you beating yourself up about it? Or how did you how did you no. recover from that? Well, you've got to remember it wasn't anything, you see, at that time. So yeah. it wasn't like I felt grief at blowing garbage, you know. Garbage didn't exist, really. So it was just a sort of nebulous idea. And so, no, I, I mean, I was bummed that I was rejected in inverted commas, but I, you know, yeah. I wasn't devastated in any way. So when did you first get comfortable, going back a little bit from you were a keyboardist in, in the initial band, and then ultimately you kind of broke out to be the lead singer. Did you, was that a difficult transition for you? Did you ever feel nervous about that? Or did you feel very comfortable on stage doing that? I felt comfortable on stage. I mean, I've always been a pretty good performer, but no, I didn't feel comfortable as a lead singer for, I would say, in, until about 2012, <laughs> in my 40s. I mean, I'm not shitting you. I'm, I'm being absolutely serious. Like, it was only really in 2012 when I realized, you know what, you're really good at what you do. You're allowed to be in this seat. You don't need anyone to tell you you're good. You are good. And once I came to that conclusion, then I was like, all right, now I am a lead singer. I am an artist. I write. 
I, you know, I write music, I write words, you're golden. It's all good. But it took a long, long time because, you know, you've got to understand I'm in a band with three men who are a lot older than me. And they have been, one in particular, Butch, of course, is, is a world-renowned, world-class engineer and producer and is very highly regarded in the music business, which, as we all know, is very patriarchal and yeah. uh, very elitist. And it's hard for women to get on the board at the best of times. But you try doing that <laughs> when you're in an all-male band where people perceive it as three genius producers <laughs> and one dummy. Yeah. So well, it took a while. So you are an inspiration to my daughter who's getting into the music industry. So thank you very much because you're exactly right. <laughs> it is such a male, it's such a male dominated industry, but it, it's, it's going to be fun to see because she's good. So, well, the new generation of young women are not to be met. They're not to be trifled with, you know, they, they, they are not the same species as my generation. Yeah. They are yeah. way more switched on, way more determined. And they are aware now that we have all this, uh, we actually have words for what my generation and the generations before us were up against. We actually have words for it. Like we are using the words patriarchal. You know what I mean? We're using white supremacy. We're, we, we actually have an ability to put a name to what so many of us are up against, you know? So it's great. It's changing. It's that, that's, evolution is a wonderful thing. Yeah, you do have the language. The men who rule the world is a great example of that. Well, indeed. <laughs> yes, it is. And, 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 and we will get into that. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the first song, Only Happy When It Rains. Okay, so I will be right. I will be right. I'm enthusiastic, surely. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Shirley Manson from the great band Garbage. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We are back with Shirley Manson from Garbage. And now, true to the name, we're going to get into the story behind the song of Only Happy When It Rains. And... I was talking to Shirley a little bit before we got started. I want to uncover some new ground about this because she's been interviewed 
thousands of times about these songs, but we want, I want to get deep. I want to understand a little bit more uh, about the song and just kind of the background. And if you remember even writing it, how it all like started, just take us through the very beginning of your recollection of how this song even became a song. You know, it's funny you should ask me that because I was thinking about this this morning because, you know, you don't often think about the old songs because, I don't know, it just seems so long ago now, you know, and people just accept, well, that's their song, it's a big hit, you know, and I don't think I've ever been asked about it really since 1995 when we first came out, you know. And the weird thing about that song is, I mean, again, you've got to remember when I came into the band, the three men in the band they were already starting to put music together. You know, they had ideas for songs. They had lyrics, like, you know, titles, words, ideas, um, little snapshots of things. And as I remember it, only happy when it rains. And I could, by, by the way, this could be completely bullshit. Like if you asked any of the boys, they could be like, no, she's out of her mind. But I'm just telling you what I remember. And I think... It was a guitar demo that they gave me. And I think it was Duke singing. And it was pretty, out of all the songs, that was the one that arguably was the most formed. Um, But of course, when you have someone with such a big personality as me (laughs) coming in and performing a song... It's going to be so wildly different from what you imagined, you know. And I came at that song with a lot of verve (laughs) and gusto. Um, But it really, strangely, it's funny because it wasn't our biggest hit, but people think of it as as our biggest song, you know. And live, it, it always goes down really well. People sing along and everyone really gets into it. And it's very euphoric and sort of quite unlike almost every other song in our discography. Um. Hmm. But to me, when I when I got the lyrics, I personally thought they would have been, it was a bit like a nursery rhyme. You know, I was sort of like, oh, OK, this isn't quite what I thought these guys would be doing. You know, um, I thought they were going to be much more heady and kind of deep. And and instead they gave me this these some of these words. And I was like, OK, yeah, this feels like a nursery rhyme to me. And I was also a bit alarmed because, of course, again, I'm Scottish. And Only Happy When It Rains was very close in nature to Happy When It Rains by the great Jesus Mary Chain, who I was a massive yes. fan of. Yeah. And I felt great a band. lot of like, I, I, I don't, anxiety is probably the best word for it. Like I felt a little anxious. I was like, this, I don't know, this is like too close to the bone for my tastes. But we, t- we took it in such a different direction that you know, the two songs are completely different and the only thing they have in common is this one title that I did not come up with. It's interesting because I was singing this song last night and I knew I was going to be talking to you this morning and I realised that the song has become more and more us as a band than it ever was. Like, it's really kind of who we are in a funny way. And if you don't really get the concept of wanting to sing sad songs in the dark, you are never going to be a fan of this band, ever. That's just a given. So this is like our sort of blueprint in a funny way of who we are and how we have lived our lives and what we're attracted to and where we've gone in our career. Sad songs in the dark. You know, it's interesting because when I think of garbage, I don't really think of sad songs in the dark because they're so energetic. They're so like high energy and 
as I was telling you before we got started, I was listening to Godhead from your latest album, and it was just, you know, that's that's such a great, like, Depeche Mode-inspired song. Um, but it's, like, you know, thumping, and, and it's big. So you were talking about your big personality. When you were, I want to go back a little bit to your childhood then. Were you always a big personality? Is that just like who you are from the very beginning? No, I was actually quite shy and introverted when I was little. But then when I became a teenager and I was raging, I just, I exploded. I was fed up of being small. You know, I think very early on, I was aware that women were supposed to be in the kitchen fucking putting dinner on the table, like at least in my household, yeah, my mum was a domestic goddess, literally. And I think I watched that and thought, fuck that. I don't want one little (laughs) iota of that responsibility. And so I just sort of, it, it opened a door for me in which I just did everything that I knew would annoy men. And like, I was loud and I took up space and I was unapologetic and... I talked a lot about my vagina because I knew it would freak out the boys around me. And it, it really did, you know, and it was all attention seeking and, and rather pathetic. But it was what I did. And as a result, people were a little frightened of me because they, they were scared of what was going to come out my mouth, you know. And I'd always be the kind of person in the room that point out the poo in the corner like, oh, God, there's a shit in the corner. But everybody else is just pretending it doesn't exist. That's kind of how I just became consolidated as a human on earth by being an angry teenager and eventually I worked that all out but that was the metamorphosis that took place okay got you and so that leads into pour your misery down on me right yeah well again my dad was really religious and he 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 forced us to go to Sunday school a lot and we were really quite a disciplined family we were told to smile and and when spoken to be polite and and nobody ever talked about negative feelings in my house. It just didn't happen. And of course, I was this very sensitive kid that had a lot of feelings going on and I had no verbiage for it. And whenever I tried to express myself, my that was all shut down by my very buttoned up parents who are beautiful, amazing people, by the way. I'm not, I'm not criticizing them in any way, but I, I just realized now as a 55-year-old that this is what happened to me when I was little. I was just like, your feelings aren't real. And of course, we all know our feelings aren't real, but they trigger real response. Yeah, absolutely. So in the lyrics for the song, and you said that the kind of the outline or at least uh, the structure was there before you get got in and like help shape it yourself. Tell, tell me a little bit about how you uh, how the lyrics do flow from the band, how the how the band together, because you're all songwriters together, from what I understand. And so does this all come out in the studio where people have their different ideas and then they just kind of naturally flow or how does that work? And, and, and taking it with this song as an example. Well, that's a good question, because, again, it's changed so much over the course of our career. Um, like the last record, I wrote all the words and all the melodies I was writing the melody. I've been doing what they call the top line. So the band are writing the music. I'm writing my parts. That's just how it has developed over the years. Because, you know, again, I'm not crazy about singing other people's words. I want what's coming out of my mouth to resonate with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like a theatre school person. I'm not somebody that will just put on a, a persona. and It's just not really my cup of tea and I'm lucky that I work with very gracious people who over the years have realized that I'm going to be 
most committed if I'm singing my words, you know, it's just a given. But back then they had Only Happy When It Rains, which I said earlier was the most formed song. And then there was, Vow was in um, a sort of musically arranged, the words were not com not complete, and Queer, which was not, didn't really have any lyrics at all other than the title Queer and then some hurried lyrics like Pink is the pinkest of the pink, the bluest of the blue. Um, and I was just like, this is moronic, I'm going to change this. But they are, I'm much more turned on by words than they are. Like they are, they love words, but they are much more obsessed with the structure of a song than I am. I want the feeling. And it's why we work really well together because we're two completely sort of disparate spirits. You know, they are much more, you know, uh, analytical and uh, regimented. And I like to be a little more, go with the flow, go what feels good, what feels exciting to me. I like the energy. I like to feel the energy in the room. I don't care if it's perfectly formed pop song. If it's boring, who cares? <laughs> you know, so this is why you've got this really, you've got a really great struggle in garbage, which has been very productive for all of us. What I'm good at, they are not good at. And what, you know, they're great at, I am not so great at. So... We were symbiotic that way. So did pour your misery down because just the way you described your childhood and how you were a little bit and that it's kind of a natural, it, it, did that lyric come from you? I don't believe it did. As I said, I think it was almost completely written that song when I, when I arrived. I mean, I can't remember, to be honest. I know that I embellished a lot on that first record, but the specifics, I don't think so. But Pour Your Misery Down, I think, was already written there. I think the song was more or less, aside from all the backing vocals and that kind of arrangement, the lyrics were in, in play, as far as I can remember. Yeah. And you were talking a little bit about the fact that it wasn't your biggest hit, but it's kind of evolved over time to be a, such a signature song. And as I said, since I was just there two weeks ago and seeing the crowd and everybody just getting into it, like that, that it is such a, um, not an anthem, but like such a celebration. And so it's that kind of song. When you first recorded the album with that song, but the entire first album, Garbage, in 1995 and released in 1995, did you feel like you all had something special and different and that it was going to resonate? I think Butch did. I think Butch felt pretty confident. I don't know. You'd probably have to ask him, actually. I don't know if he felt confident or not. Maybe he felt neurotic. Who knows? But I didn't have any faith in the whole damn thing. <laughs> I really didn't. I mean, I'm so, not being glib. I'm being absolutely serious. I was just like, we are going nowhere fast. But it's been a blast. Yeah, I bet it has been. And I'm not going to ask you about the origins of the name Garbage because you've been asked that many times. But how did you feel about the name Garbage and coming out the I door? hated the name. You know, out the gates. I hated the name. I wanted to change it. And actually, uh, Howard Thompson, who worked at our record label at the time, a very well-known, amazing A&R guy who signed Bjork, actually. And I loved Howard. And he and I were like, this name, this name has to go. It's terrible. But the boys were absolutely adamant that they did not change the name. And so we were stuck with it. Uh, and I remember telling my mom, like, you know, the band's doing pretty good, mom. Blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're making a record. And... Got some bad news, though. <laughs> it's called Garbage. And there was this huge silence on the other end of the phone. And she went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
That's a terrible name, but we're stuck with it now. Uh, it worked out pretty well. And then yeah, it yeah. also got you into, this song got you into Guitar Hero, and you mm. became an avatar in Guitar Hero. So how did that feel? How did that feel to be an avatar where everybody's playing the, the song and it's you? I didn't think about it too much. I mean, I went to the film studio and got filmed in this ludicrous outfit, you know, with weird goggles and, and like sensors all attached to my body and everything. Um, and it was a thrill, you know, I was thrilled. I, I played Guitar Hero myself, so I was kind of into it. But I didn't think too far along the road. I mean, I, I, you know, in the job that we do, you can't afford to think too much about how me, your music is received by other people because I think it will mm. make you very ill. You know, so I just try to do my thing and not worry about too much how what other people think. You know, it's 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 irrelevant to me in, in many ways. I'm very grateful when people like it and when people respond mm. to it well. But I can't afford for my own uh, mental sort of well-being to worry too much about how people think about what I say, what I do, how I do it. Yeah. Well, again, as I was saying at the very beginning, it's amazing how many en this endless string of songs that are in our, you know, kind of in the zeitgeist, in the pop culture that you all have done. And the albums continuously have been critically acclaimed. And that doesn't happen too often with bands where it's like one after the other is not that the critics really matter to your point. But nonetheless, they were really well received that way. And when you go see you in concert, and it's just you're reminded about song after song after song and it just takes you back. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Thanks for the guided tour of that song. And then we're going to get into the second song on the story behind the song. So we'll be right back with Shirley Manson of the name that she loves band. <laughs> a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how... I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Soundmind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. We're back with Shirley Manson Woo! of the band Garbage. And we're going to talk now about the song The Men Who Rule the World from Gods and Masters album, which was released almost exactly a year ago. And again, another one that was very highly rated in your first album in a few years. Did you know that you were going to the studio to, to do this one? Was after the, the earlier album, was there a plan or is there never a plan? Really? There's never a plan. We're actually really unorganized. It's this kind of astounding. It still to this day shocks me what a mess we are. I keep thinking that somehow we'll become more professional and more organized, but we really aren't. We sort of just move from, we take the next indicated step every time. It's like very little planning, very little organization. But we did know that we were going to go in and make a record, a new record. Um, we just signed a, a, a new deal with BMG Records and um, we were excited, you know, to have that kind of investment, that kind of belief in the band. Again, you know, we hadn't been signed to a major label in a long time. And, um, you know, when you have been a band that sort of existed outside of the mainstream for a decade to have to be 
have people be interested in in the music you're making is you know wonderful it's like astounding so we were excited when we made this record but um we didn't have a blueprint for it or anything it was just what came out during this, the writing sessions and yeah we made a, a record that we're very proud of and, and we were kind of shocked actually that it got such a great reception because we we just didn't I don't know. We just didn't expect it. It was surprising. Well, were all these songs written pre-pandemic? Uh, they were written pre-pandemic, yes. Okay, so how did you feel about releasing this album a year ago when touring was just kind of opening up, but not really? Was that a tough decision? It was a tough decision, yeah, but we'd already sat in it for a year, so we were like, mm. it has to come out. Like, we can't wait any longer. It's, like, depressing. And as it turns out, it was it was not ideal for us to put a record out last year because, like you say, you can't, you can, not only can you not tour, but you can't go and support it in other territories. So you can't go to London and do TV or radio or you can't do anything. You literally just put it out into the void. And it's a bit of a heartbreak, you know, because you've worked on something so long and so hard. And we believed in the record and it was and it's saying stuff even today, a year later, it's still saying stuff that needs to be said and needs to be heard. And so, you know, that said, I mean, it went, I don't know, top 20 all, all over the shop, top 10 in many territories in Europe, you know. So we got an amazing response. But um, yeah, it would have been good if we'd been able to promote it. But that's life. Yeah. And we're, we're luckier than most. So I should shut my mouth. And how did you come up with the the album name No Gods No Masters? I can't really remember why I fell on that phrase. I mean, a lot of the themes of the record were just churning around my mind like a sort of like strange radio frequencies. Like I just couldn't stop thinking about racism, you know, like Trump's racism made me insane. It made, I couldn't sleep at night and I was so frustrated that I had no power no power to, to speak out against what was happening and, and, and the feelings that he was provoking in the country. And I was devastated by it. So I guess I was thinking about that notion of power, like, you know, religion, organized religion is powerful and is responsible for some terrible things and allows other seats of power to get away with, with just stomping on the rights of Human, other human beings and I, I, I just guess I felt like that was the title that felt right for who we were what we were saying on the record and where we were at in in our time yeah and one of the things everything that you were just talking about uh, I, I noticed well it's very prominent you have be kind is a theme that's on the screen uh, at the shows, but also in a lot of the imagery that I've seen connected with this latest album. So be kind. And that flow, that's a message, obviously, that <laughs> you're you're putting out into the world, given all the different dynamics that you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that people who care about others have are, are described, you know, as woke. It's become a criticism to criticize someone who cares about another person. I find it utterly abhorrent and perplexing but I realize it's all part of the it's the all part of the play you know it's all part of the system they they want to cast people who care about others as nuts not so or or you know um stepping on the rights of other human beings it's this classic play it's like chess maneuver you know 
But I never want to get to the point where I watch injustice occur towards another human being and not give a shit. I don't want to be the yeah. person that's walking over the homeless person on the sidewalk and not give a shit. I don't want to be that person, you know. I don't want to watch a, a young black teenager get shot in the back and just shrug my shoulders and turn away and eat my fucking whatever pizza and watch the game. I don't want to be that person. So Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, and I totally agree with you. The word woke has become, it's this like throwing away feelings of humanity you know it's just like almost it's almost condemning it and criticizing it by just throwing that word out there woke when people are just talking about the kind of themes that you're talking about yeah yeah it's very clever yeah you know yeah well it, it is the typical page from the playbook as you said and your song well first of all i was listening to godhead as i mentioned before and i know we're not going to get into that song but it's very depeche mode sounding in many different ways. Great song for everybody. Check it out from the from the new album. But how? just really quickly, because I don't want to focus on that one, but um, how did that sound f- come from you? Is that because Depeche Mode is a, a big influence on you or the band? Well, Depeche Mode is definitely a touchstone for us, for sure. But I mean, to me, that the, the song was written um, with really basic guitars and and a drum machine and the drum it was the drum machine that sort of created that that sort of personality in a way and then it what I was singing over the top of it I think everybody just knew naturally oh we know what to do with this it needed to be heavy what I was saying what I'm saying is pretty heavy it sounds fun and it's and it's cute but it's also pretty fucking serious you know and that I think the guitarists really sort of leaned in and you know, Steve, I think, was the one responsible for a lot of the the keyboards. And um, yeah, it's just it touches on a lot of mu- kind of music that we love. And it's a favorite. Yeah. Well, and, and you did just in concert. You I think it was Personal Jesus was woven into one of the songs. And that was, you know, that was really interesting, too. But you were talking about the the song kind of touches upon many of the themes and the lyrics, people listen to the lyrics from that song, which then flow into the song that we're going to talk about a little bit, which is um, uh, the men who rule the world. And why did you choose of all the different songs that you could have chosen from your discography? Why this one as the second song? Well, because it's, it's, it's uh, addressing two things that I am impassioned about. One is of course, racism and the second one is the patriarchy. So you've got these two themes that I'm consumed by. And I think what I, I, I was just in um, Washington DC two days ago and I went to the History uh, Museum of African-American History and Culture. And in that museum is George Clinton's mothership. and there's a little plaque underneath the mothership that says, you know, George Clinton's idea behind the mothership was to create an, an alternative reality to the world free of racism and hate. And of course, this song was written right after I'd done a podcast where I interviewed George Clinton. Um, and the studio was just 15 minutes from our music studio. So I interviewed George for my podcast and I was so inspired by him, like what an amazing 
human being, like just an incredible, let alone his co contribution to culture and music as a human being is amazing. And of course, I came back from that podcast to the studio and I was just, my whole head was filled with, with George and the boys had been working on this jam and I just like God or whatever you consider God sent down these lyrics and I just went into the booth and I said, I've got something for this. And woof, it all just came out. And it was this idea of like a, me saving the old people and the children and, and all the animals and the seeds and the birds and everything beautiful, putting it into George Clinton's mothership and fucking getting out of there. And to me, it's, a, it's an anti-racist statement. It's anti-capitalist. It's anti-patriarchal. It's a, To me, it's a really powerful statement of intent and I'm really proud of it and it excites me to perform it every night. So you said in that um, in that particular case the lyrics just came immediately to you is that a fairly common thing or is it not for you? Not common uncommon for sure usually yeah. I'll come up with bits you know like I'll come up with a theme or I'll come up with a verse and then I have to work on the second verse you know at home afterwards but this just came to me entirely together. It was also inspired a bit by, like there's a part of it in the song which says, you know, destroy the, the violator, you know, hate the violator, destroy the violator. And that came from me watching all the uprising of women in South America who stood outside the Houses of Parliament, um, all over South America, but in particular in Argentina, they were outside the Houses of Parliament. And there was a million women in the streets with their fists in the air shouting I, I can't remember because I don't speak Spanish but their Spanish phrase that they were using was you know you are the violator we want to destroy you kind of thing and so I put that into the song as a nod to you know violence against women and supporting women and wanting women to have freedom of rights and access to abortion and so on and so forth. So when you see all the uh, based on all the kinds of things you're talking about and how how you are, um, you know, the political, for lack of a better word, of way of putting it, but the political aspects are so critical for you into getting into your lyrics and your music. When you look at all the different forces that are out there that you touched upon, how do you feel about the future of humanity? Oh, Peter, I wish you hadn't asked me that I, because... Um, I have to ask you that. I don't have a very positive response I keep saying to my husband, you know, to me, what's happening in America feels like how I imagine the empire of Rome fell. Like, I feel like people just losing their common sense. And in doing so, that allows your infrastructure to crumble, you know. I find it very scary. I mean, we were just driving along the motorway yesterday, freeway, excuse me, and I'm looking at all the litter on the side of the road. And I felt really panicky it's like what's wrong with people why are we like we've got this incredible planet we know it's struggling and we're just tossing shit out of our cars and throwing our detritus away and not thinking somebody else is going to pick it up and yet not feeling that they that we as individuals have any responsibility to society it, it literally feels like the practice of madness it's a it's irrational it's illogical it's cruel it's irresponsible <laughs> And so I don't feel very good about the future of humanity, I must admit. Like, I, and I don't have children. I'm relieved of my duties when I die. I'm like, I don't need to worry 
about 100 years from now. But anyone out there with children, I am shocked that you're not getting into it with your politicians about climate change. Why would you not care what's going to happen to your children and your children's children and beyond? It's very practice of madness. So are you glad yeah. you asked me that? Well, We're all doomed, as I they said in no, Dad's well, Army. We're doomed. And there, there are some pleasant thoughts for everybody out there. But no, look, I, I appreciate that's why I asked the question, because um, you know these are clearly very crazy times, very divided times. and um, I do think, and though, to, to, you are, to be more positive, sorry to interrupt, Peter, it's very rude, but I, to, I do want to end on a more positive note, which is I think the young generations are way more switched on than we were. And I just don't think they're going to allow this to continue, this this crazy regime of thinking. I think they're going to shake things up. They're going to have to for their own survival. And so I feel deep down quite positive. Well, look, you know, um, music experiences are something that's fundamental to me, and I was telling you my family. And when we were at your event and um, seeing you with Tears for Fears, which, again, it's, gr it's a great tour, it's a great show, is that all the positivity that comes from music. And so you're using your platform to be able to speak, say your, your, all your words and get these messages out there. But at the same time, it's a celebration. And it's interesting. I was at a music festival very recently and you know nobody's talking, everybody is respectful of each other. And it's pretty amazing that when you get people together, how respectful they can be. And it's when they're almost like they're divorced from each other on social media. That's when it's easy to slam on each other yeah. all the time. So. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, if you've got declining, you know, organized religion, which used to be so powerful, is now declining fast. And society is so fragmented that people feel alone and they feel afraid. And when people feel alone and afraid, and I'm afraid they're the very worst versions of themselves. But you're right, when people are forced together, like in a music festival, people are lovely. You know, and they look after each other. And I think you're absolutely right. It's when we're by ourselves that we feel isolated and, and uncared for. And that is the responsibility of leaders. You know, leaders have to make people feel good, right? That's but none of them give a shit. They're too busy lining their own pockets with other people's money. That's all they seem to care about. Money, 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 and how much richer they can make themselves. They don't seem to give a flying fuck about any of us and or our futures. And I find it astounding. Ugh. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but one last thing, Peter, yeah, which I must out pick there. up on. Get I don't there. use my platform. I am the platform. Do you know what I mean? That's just who yeah. I am. Yeah. I'm not going, oh, I've got everybody's yeah. attention. Now I'm going to say what I want to say about my political views. That is not how I see it at all. It's just like, I, this is who I am. This is, this is what I think. And if you don't like it, that's cool. I get it. But I'm not using my platform. Do you know what I mean? That, that's why we love your music, man. You know, that's, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but um, I'm going to get into a lightning round of certain questions. But before I do, you're on tour. Uh, and for everybody out there, it truly is a must-see. And I'm not even sure if you're touring together with Tears for Fears the entire tour, are you? Is it we the are touring North America together and it's been one of the okay. most lovely magical tours of my life it's just been a really sweet affair yeah I just recently had Roland on also from oh, Tears for Fears so, so it was great speaking with him yeah uh, it, uh, amazing yeah, artist you know song. that I don't know I just have so much respect for them you know and they've they've operated outside of the mainstream for so long you know and they just do their thing and they mm. do their thing with such skill 
and humility that I find it profoundly moving actually I, I've, I've been shocked by my response to this tour and watching them play hearing them play has been really uh moving and what's next for you and your music for the band and music is there because you released the album a year ago but you're touring now really in support of the album uh but are you thinking about a next album we are yeah um we're actually we did some writing earlier on in the year and we're going back in to do some more writing in october once we get off the road it's the plan anyway okay so we can expect an album in 2023 knowing us i doubt it but you never know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay and then how about acting since you have done um a fair share of acting you are a liquid terminator mm. in the sarah connor chronicles of terminator how did how was that and did you enjoy it and do you anticipate doing more i love doing it it was a dream come true to be a almighty terminator but ugh, i i find the process of acting kind of stressful i have to say um like they changed your lines 20 minutes before going on set. And I, I just thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. If I got the right role, because I do get, I continue to get stuff. It's very rarely anything I'm interested in, if the truth be told. I'd love to do more sci-fi. Like, I like it being weird. Mm. I don't want to be like somebody's mum mm-hmm. or like the, the thing that I get the most is, you know, rocker. A drug addict. Yeah. Um, and I'm just. <laughs> nice. First of all, I nice. don't have the skill. <laughs> first of all, I don't have the skill <laughs> to play a drug addict because it really takes a lot of skill or a drunk. You know, I just don't have that skill. So I, I'm not going to get myself into something that I'm going to look really shitty doing. But um, I've just never quite gotten the things I would like. The things that I have gotten that I would like, I just didn't get the role. I didn't. I, I find the auditioning process very difficult, very stressful. <laughs> Well, so what's what's the kind of what's the kind of uh, role that you would like? I'd like to like, play another the Terminator role for here. You? Okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yes. All right, and then you're also involved in a lot of philanthropic things, which is very cool. Is there a particular cause that um, you've touched upon a lot of different themes? But is there a particular cause right now that you're very much focused on? No, not really. I mean, I don't consider myself an activist or a philanthropist at all. I just occasionally speak up if I see something that seems super uncool. You know, I really have a lot of respect for people who are activists. It must be exhausting and heartbreaking. And I'm not a decent enough person to get that seriously into activism. It's too much for me. I wish I I could. Mm. I really admire people that devote their lives to making lives better for other people, but... I, I just like to... Well, you've been involved in a lot of different things. Yeah. You have been involved in a lot of different things. I know, and, I'm a softy, you know, Peter, naturally... but let's not focus on that. <laughs> no, it's good to... It's softy with a a tough edge, which is wonderful. Okay, so really quick lightning crowd, uh, okay, round. Okay, let's go. What's your favorite artist, like your favorite moment or something that sticks out among all the moments in your career? I know that's a tough one, but is there, doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be small, but something that was really special to you. I met Venus Williams the other day and I just nearly lost it. That was wild. And if you didn't become an artist and a musician, what do you think you'd be doing? I don't know. My husband sometimes jokes I'd be a policewoman. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, I think I would like to have been a ballerina. That's what I would have liked to have done. Okay. And then who are some artists that you respect today that may be under the radar, but somebody that you think is really deserving of a a bigger platform? 
Well, the first person that springs to mind would be Jenny Beth. I mean, not that she doesn't have a, a attention because everybody's paying attention to her, but I think she is just extraordinary. An extraordinary young uh, artist. Um, and we've only seen a tiny little fragment of her talent. I think she's astounding. Jenny Beth. Jenny Beth, formerly of Savages. And she's now ah, her okay. own solo, solo uh, career. And she's magnificent. She's magnificent. Well, listen, again, Shirley, it's great to have you um, on the podcast today. Thank you for the guided tours of your life and the two songs. And uh, it was wonderful to see you recently and wonderful to see you today. Uh, so thanks, Shirley Manson from the great band Garbage. Thank you, Peter. And everybody go out and see them on tour. And we will see you next time on The Story Behind the Song. That was Shirley Manson of Garbage sharing her story behind the band's anti-grunge 1995 classic, Only Happy When It Rains. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti, that's C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow. And at Creative Media, that's creative, C-R-E-A-T-V as in Victor, dot media. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also, make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.